Okay, so we are in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Let's pray, and then we'll look at our passage for today. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the, the gospel of Luke, which we started last week. And it just kind of corresponds with, with the Christmas season as we begin to look at the beginning of the story. And so, Father, we pray that as we go through this gospel, Father, that you would help us to, um, to kind of get lost in the story, that we would be able to transport ourselves back in time during this very special uh, point in human history where God became man and uh, that ultimately the Messiah came to live a life, Lord, that was an, an example, that he was uh, ultimately the perfect sacrifice for us, Lord, that there would become a way that we could enter into a relationship with you uh, and have forgiveness for our sins. Lord, we, uh, during this season, as we get excited about Christmas, uh, we are uh, we ask that you would help us, Lord, to to keep our minds upon Christ and the significance of his incarnation, that God would become man so that we might uh, have a relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us as we enter into the story. We pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us, and that you would help us just uh, to have a good time, Lord, looking at this story. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, And they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John." You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their, the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife 
is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the present presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And Father, we do thank you. We thank you for the story, Lord. We ask that you would lead us and that you would guide us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so the story begins uh, in the days of Herod. King of Judah. And so Luke, as he begins to tell a story, last week we saw in the first four verses that he, uh, that many had uh, sort of taken it upon themselves to tell the story of Christ, that they had gone through great extents to tell the story. Luke said, you know what, I felt like it was a worthwhile story to tell, and I thought I should go about and try to tell the story as well. And so that he took in all the information that he had to lay it out in consecutive order so that the readers could know the exact truth of the things about Jesus. And so something that Luke does throughout his writings is he gives us these sort of timestamps that we can go back in history and sort of get a a picture of where we find ourselves in history. And so he starts this by Herod. And he says, this happened in the days of Herod, who is the king of Judah. So Herod the Great was was a a man that was very well known. Uh, There's so many of, if you go to Israel today, you're going to see his fingerprints all through Israel today. Uh, he was confirmed by the Roman Senate, but he was never accepted by the Jews. Uh, he reigned from 40 years before Christ until four years after, or until four years before Christ. So he had a 36 year reign during this window. He was a, a prolific builder. If you go to Israel today, you'll go to Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea is a port town, and it's a huge, beautiful palace. You'll see um, uh, Masada, this huge fortress that he built. All through Israel, he built these huge, huge buildings. He came from the family line of Esau. Uh, We just went through Genesis, and this is from Jacob and Esau. So Esau, the one who sold the the bowl of stew uh, from his his family line, uh, Herod the Great, descended. He was a brutal, evil man. I mean, he was ruthless, barbaric. One, one uh, writer says this, the guy was brilliant and evil, unbelievable, so much that he murdered his own wife. He murdered two of his own sons because he was so committed to control. He was such a paranoid ruler that he thought that they might abdicate his rule, so he had them murdered. He murdered lots of people. He was so paranoid and controlling that he would send out spies to eavesdrop on conversations of people in the cities. 
He outlawed free speech and free assembly. You weren't even allowed to get together and talk about him. And if you did, he just killed you. He would dress up in peasants' garbs. He would go out and eavesdrop on the citizens again. Um, it got to the point where he just murdered so many people and political opponents that there was such a public outcry. He murdered everybody. He was super harsh. And as the story unfolds and they get the, you know, the rumor that this new king was to be born and they go through and they murder all the babies, it didn't even really make uh, the news because, well, so what? Herod killed some people. Like, it wasn't really that big of a deal. This guy was brutal. And Luke begins the story to say, during this window, this is where the story began. And so he introduces us to a priest. There was a priest named Zacharias. And so this priest, Zacharias, he is of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we're introduced to this couple, uh, both from a godly line. Uh, Not only were they from a godly line, but we're told about them that they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. So both both of them came from this godly lineage. We're told both of their sort of their, not their chain of commands, but the, their genealogy going backwards. But then about their own lives, just because they came from a godly family, that doesn't mean that they themselves were actually godly. But we are told that when God looked at this couple, he saw a righteous couple, that they were in right standing before him. They walked blamelessly before God. They lived their lives for God. This is a, a couple that, that God said, this is, they're doing it well. Um, nothing wrong with them. And then we come to verse seven. And so in the midst of their godliness, we're going to see that they have some deep seated pain and hurt in their own lives that they're having to deal with, but they had no child. This is a huge, huge thing in this culture, especially that this would be like a scarlet letter. Well, if you're so godly and you're so righteous, where are all your children? And it, it was interpreted to, that it meant that God's hand wasn't really upon them. And so they had no child. And we're told that Elizabeth, she was barren. So even in her younger days, she was unable uh, to have children. Uh, but then they were both advanced in years. So they're sort of like the, the double barrier. She was unable to conceive. And now she's past, and he is past childbearing years. And so we're exposed to this pain of theirs, righteous couple, pain. And sometimes in our lives, we think, well, if I have pain and sorrow, if I'm going through this thing, that must mean that God is punishing me or God is doing, like, giving me this consequence for something that I can't see. And in this story, we see nothing of the sort. We see that they have this hard circumstance. We often have hard circumstances. We often have pain. And we can interpret it to think, oh, God's punishing me. Or we can interpret it like, you know, I have no idea what's going on but God is going to use this for his glory, for my benefit in my own life, but I just can't see it. And obviously in the midst of this story, we look back 2,000 years and we think this is an amazing story that's about to happen in this couple's life. And I'm not sure that it would be as powerful had God not sort of set up the story the way he set it up. And so this is what we know about this couple. Verse eight, now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, 
according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn, burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Okay, so a lot of information is given here. I love this. This is, this is Luke. Remember, Luke is writing to, uh, writing to Gentiles. He's writing to people that he assumes know nothing about the culture, know nothing about how the temple worked. And so in this paragraph or few sentences, we, we get a sort of a picture about how things operated within the temple. So we're introduced to sort of this, uh, the priestly service before God of his division. And so uh, what we know about this, it depends on who you read, but basically about 20,000 priests existed during this time of the priestly line. And of the 20,000 priests, they had 24 different divisions. So we're told which particular division he was a part of. And then in each division, you have about 750 men, you know, maso menos, depending on what number you take. Um, but there's about 750 guys for each division. They would go to Jerusalem. It was sort of like being in the reserves in the military. They had to do two weeks a year. And so for one week, twice a year, they would go down to Jerusalem and they would do their priestly duty. And so we're told that that's what he's doing. He's down there doing his priestly duty. Now, a part of the priestly duty, twice a day, they would enter the temple, uh, to not the holiest of holies, but the temple, and they would deal with uh, the incense that was burning, and there'd be a candle that they'd have to kind of click the, uh, clip the wick to kind of make sure the candle's burning. So they would do this twice a day. And we're told, I think we're told, or maybe it's a little bit, uh, he was chosen by lot, we were told. So they kind of drew lots, this sort of, uh, it's kind of like the rolling of the dice. Um, the scriptures often say like man rolls, or I say rolls the, rolls the dice, but really it says that, that, that man does the lot situation, but it's really God's hand sovereignly behind it. If you were selected to go in and light the incense in the temple and clip the wick on the candle that was burning, this is the Super Bowl for you. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. If it happened to you once, you wouldn't be able to do it again. And so he was chosen to go in. Now, the temple area, I do, of course, I have slides because I like slides. Um, so we can go to the next slide just to show you guys what we're talking about. So if you were to go to Israel today, this is what you would see. You'd see, Just to kind of orientate yourself, this is basically downtown Jerusalem, modern-day modern Jerusalem here. There's the Dome of the Rock uh, that the... That, the Muslims have control over. You have the, the southern edge of the wall with steps going down. This is the city of David, which was the first part of, of Jerusalem back during David's reign. Underneath, there's a huge amount of water. You have the Kedron Valley that kind of runs between. You have the Mount of Olives. It's a bunch of tombs present day where they would bury people. Uh, the more important you got, uh, the closer you would be to the temple. You can also see tombs up here uh, because of prophecy that the Messiah is going to return to the eastern side of the gate. You can see the eastern gate right here. Uh, the Muslims over the years have begun to like bury people to try to block the entrance of the Messiah, and you can tell they've walled up the entrance there, so now there's no way the Messiah can enter from their thinking. Um, next slide. 
So we're going to kind of go to a, a drawing here. So just to orientate us here, this is the eastern wall. The Kedron Valley is here. The try to it's so hard to put the size of this into perspective. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to try to, to explain that picture here. We'll say that this is based from here to here is about three football fields long. Uh, so huge. This is about a football field, like a one and a half football fields in length. So it's massive. And then you'll see little walls around. So this is like the temple area, the whole area here. Then you'll see walls, like you'll have the, the Gentile, then like women and then Jews. Like, so there, it's like barricaded. In, and then you have the actual temple right here. So that's the actual temple that we're talking about. And if you can really look up there, some like my dot can't even like stand still enough, but those are people just to kind of show you the magnitude of how big this is. Then we're going to zoom in a little bit more. And so now we're in the, the, the temple. This is the actual temple. So you have a little dude here to show for scale, like how massive this is. So you have a little guy here. This is the front door. All of the people would have been out here praying. Zacharias was allowed to go in to the temple area here behind this curtain. This is the, the veil that was torn in two at Jesus's death. And then behind it is the holiest of holies. And then we can, we, there's a side angle. We can go in a little bit further to kind of have a little bit. So now we have the stairs going in and then we have the table of bread right there. We have the lampstand where they would kind of clean the wick and we would have the altar of incense right here where he would go and he put his little incense. I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what it is. I, Naturally, have I have some hippies in my family, so I think of modern day incense, but I'm not. I have no idea. Um, so he's to the face of it. There's the veil behind it, the holiest of holies. Angel shows up to the right. We can just kind of leave this slide up there for now, so you guys can see. Um, so verse eight. I'll just sort of read through this again. So now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God at the appointing order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of, of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were, out, were in prayer outside at the hour of incense. So they are all outside. This is a super significant deal. And at this moment, as he enters into the, the, holy, the, not the, the holy place, not the holiest of holies, he would enter into the holy place, and the people are outside prayer. So it's basically the whole nation of Israel has their prayers focused on this one man who is doing his priestly duty. Verse 11, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of the incense. So we have the altar of incense. To the right of that, there's this angel. Verse 12 is kind of a, I find it funny. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him naturally. So this is, uh, he goes in there. He's doing his little thing. You got to remember, he's never done this before. You go in there. Okay, I can imagine this. I don't know if they had like pretend ones set up that they could practice like doing dry runs on before he did it. He's like, okay, I'm going to walk in. There's going to be some bread over here. There's going to be a candle over here. Just snip the little wick, you know, and then go over here, uh, light the match or do whatever to get the incense going. And, and then there's this angel. He's like, nobody told me about the angel. Like, is this normal or is this... Like he has no, this is not something that he did all the time. It's not like, oh, he was going in and making his morning coffee. This is a once in a lifetime situation. He goes there, there's this angel. I would be troubled. You would be troubled. 
you would have fear, he had fear. Every time the angel Gabriel appears in the scriptures, there's three times as far as I, I can tell that he's actually named. Daniel, he appears. In this occasion, he appears. And then to Mary, he's appeared. Every time that he appears to human, the response of the human is fear. There's something different about this. It doesn't like, this isn't just some, uh, looks like somebody's grandmother or grandfather that's really sweet. This is an angel. And, and there seems to be something that separates them from us in appearance when they're confronted with them. There's something divine or close to divinity, something that is different from us that's terrifying. I'm not saying it's divine. Um, but this angel got his attention. And the angel in verse 13 just says, hey, relax. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. So this, this one is, like, it's a fascinating thing that the angel says. So for those of you that are unaware, Zacharias is going to be the father of John, John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of Christ. He was prophesied many, many years before that somebody would come to, to be a forerunner to Jesus. And here this priest is, He's been described as being a godly man. He and his, his wife have lived righteously before God. They clearly have this deep-seated pain. They're now old, older. They're, they're beyond the, the age of childbearing years. And the angel, while he's doing this priestly duty, this super holy ritual that they would have had fear in doing in of its own right, says your prayers have been answered. And it's like, well, what has he been praying about? And we go, oh, has he been praying for the Messiah? Has he been praying for this, that this is like this new time in human history? The angel says, no, your petition, your prayer for a child. The thing that you're like, the the part in your soul that causes you the most amount of grief and the most amount of pain, God has heard your prayer. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. So this is like a whole lot just got thrown at him. He's kind of worried about, okay, how do you clip the the wick? How do you do the incense? What's it smell like? I'm really fat. I'm going to do a quick look. You know, I doubt he'd peek around to the holiest of holies to see what's in there. But, But he gets in there and then this angel appears. Says, hey, your prayer's been answered. A kid is coming. You're gonna, you're gonna, uh, your wife is gonna have a son. You're gonna name him John, not really a name in the family line. And you're gonna have joy and gladness and rejoice at his birth. This is, this would be an overwhelming thing to receive. This poor guy walks in here. He's introduced by an angel. He has great fear. Now the angel's telling him that the thing, like, like, I can only imagine what he's feeling. I don't want to read too much in the story, but I also do like reading the story. I like to imagine in my mind, like, like this isn't something you kind of joke around with. Like this, this is, this is a guy who has a wife, who the wife has had great pain, and I'm sure, like, guys like to fix things, and this has been a thing that hasn't been fixable, and I don't know how many like 
hard nights they had, how many tears were shed, how many times the husband was in trouble because she was having grief and he didn't know how to like just be there and listen to her where he's trying to fix the whatever or do like, and now the angel like walks in here, hey, your wife's going to get pregnant and have a son. It's like, okay, this is like, what, what do I do with this information? But the angel's not done describing the son. He says all the people will rejoice and he's going to get to how the people will rejoice in a few verses. But in verse 15, he's going to, give some more information about this kid that they're about to have, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Like, you two are blameless, but this guy in the, in the sight of the Lord is going to be great. I, I do believe that Jesus said, and during his earthly ministry, we'll get there, that there was no other, there's no greater man than John the Baptist in human history. So their son is seen greatly in the eyes of the Lord. And we're told that it will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. So a lot of information is given to us about this child. What the first thing that he's, we're we're told about this whole, he won't drink wine or liquor. Uh, I'm sure this is something that every mother, while she has a brand new baby in her womb, this is like the first thing she's thinking about. And we're like, well, what does this have to do with anything? Well, what he's saying is, is that this child will live according to the Nazarite vow which you can find in Numbers chapter 6. We're not going to go there. The number, Nazarite vow was sort of this voluntary vow that you could make before the, for God. And there were a number of things that, like, no wine, you wouldn't cut your hair, and you couldn't touch dead bodies. And, and the purpose was to sort of make you a little bit weird amongst other people, to stand out for God. And so what we see here, though, is this wasn't a voluntary thing for John the Baptist. This is something that was sort of placed upon him. So you're going to have a son, and he's going to, from from the very get-go, he's going to take the Nazarite vow. And then we're told that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, yet while in his mother's womb. And so when we go through the New Testament, as we go through the Gospels in particular, there are things we have to sort of t- to remember. Um, and I'm not sure, like here, this, this one isn't so different for us. We, for those Christians who have a sort of a, a, a baseline understanding of theology and how things work, we understand uh, as Christians, according to scripture, that you are born, you are a sinner, you're separated from God. Uh, God moves in your life and you reach a point where you, you see the gospel, you hear the gospel, you understand the gospel, you respond to the gospel. And at that moment of response or belief, we're told in Ephesians 1.13 that you're sealed by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God indwells you, seals you until the day of redemption. And during this time, it was very different. So the Spirit of God moved differently, a, a big a uh, theological word that I don't use that often is a word dispensation that throughout history, sort of that while God never changes how he related to humanity, it's changed uh, throughout different seasons of hu- human history. And so during this history, the spirit of God, those who walked with God, they weren't necessarily baptized with the spirit. The spirit of God could come upon them. The spirit of God would be upon them uh, and they would accomplish things. But then the Spirit of God could leave them, unlike now. 
This is why when we read Psalm 51 about David and Bathsheba and his sin and his prayer of remorse, where he's praying to God, Lord, like, don't take your spirit from me. Because the spirit of God, as it came upon men, it would come and depart. So there's some distinctions. But certainly in this situation, what John is, what John, what Zacharias is told about John, while your son is in the womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is certainly, I would venture to say, like the maybe the only time. I mean, I can't say exclusively. I'm not God, but it seems like this is one of the very few, if not the only time that a human in the womb was filled with the Holy Spirit. I can't say that. I mean, who knows? I, certainly in Scripture, this is a big deal. And so he's saying, while he's in the womb, the Spirit of God will be upon him at this stage. This is, this is a huge, huge point. Um, as this story unfolds next week, and we'll see next week, not a spoiler alert, so if you don't want to know what's coming, you can close your ears. Um, but Jesus is going to be conceived. And in that moment, very early on, maybe like six weeks along, Jesus in the womb to baby John in the womb. And there's going to be this reaction within the womb from John acknowledging the Messiah in, in the womb. And so we, as a church, are very like unashamedly, or at least I am, that we're a pro-life church that life begins at conception, and we see it here in this story, it's just assumed. This, this word for child, it's the same word. We'll look at it more next week. It, whether you're in the uterus or you're six months along or a year along, it's the same word because it's human life. And so we're told that this human that's in the womb from conception is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's amazing. Now, back in verse, whatever verse it was, when the people re- rejoice at his coming, I think that was verse 14, possibly. Let me see here, verse 14. Uh, yeah, many will rejoice at his birth. And so now we're going to hear in verse 16, why will many rejoice at his birth? And he will turn away many of the sons of Israel Back to their, back to the Lord their God. It is He who will go as a forerunner before Him, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is seismic. So he's he, there's a there's a whole lot again happening here. So we're, we're told about this child that's going to come from Zacharias is talking to the angel in the holy place. He says, you're going to, your wife and you, who your wife who is barren and both of you who are really old and you can't have kids anymore, she's going to get pregnant. You're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. He's not going to drink of the wine. He's going to take the Nazarite valve, vow, not the vow, vow, vow. And, and the spirit of God is going to be within him in the womb. And he's going to turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, their God. So Israel, you get the impression that Israel is now wayward from God. And the son that you're about to have, he's going to come 
and he's going to get the attention of the nation of Israel. Israel, the nation who has many promises from God still to this day, many promises from God that are still yet to be uh, fulfilled. And this John is going to turn the people of Israel, their hearts to their creator. And then we're going to see this whole, this like restoration of families that the, that he's going to come as a forerunner before him, the him there's the Messiah, that's Jesus, and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient attitude of righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the nation of Israel is going to be prepared. Their hearts are going to get right. The, the soil is going to be cultivated so that they might receive their savior. And he's quoting from Malachi. And so Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And throughout Malachi, there's some prophecy in Malachi. The first one is in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And there we read, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. And then in Malachi 4, verse 6, he says, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So the Old Testament, as it unfolds here, it comes to Malachi. Then God goes silent. And we have the period that we know is the silent 400 years where where God is silent amongst the people. Nothing happens. There's nothing going on. The people are sort of left waiting and wondering. 400 years. That's a very long time. Like our nation is still like a baby. We're talking like, you know what I mean? Like if we go back 400 years, that's a really long time. And in the midst of this, where God seems to have disappeared off, off like doing anything with humanity, doing anything with Israel, we're introduced to this couple, Elizabeth and Zacharias. They're faithfully serving God. They're staying hopeful. They're waiting. They're watching. They're going about their lives being faithful and true to God. And now in the midst of this spot, the angel appears to Zacharias. He quotes from this verse after 400 years of silence. And he says, this prophecy that you know, the last thing that God spoke through a prophet to the people of Israel is about to be fulfilled in your child. This is kind of a big deal. How do you think you would respond? I think I'd have some questions. And so Zacharias asks a very logical question, but he's going to get in trouble for it. In verse 18, Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know for certain? Like, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He's very politically correct with that one. He's like, you're crazy. Like, how, like, how in the world is this going to happen? And I just kind of love the smack talk. I mean, I don't know if it's smack talk, but a, like, Gabriel kind of reminds us of some, like, truths about, like, what, like, what's happening before him. He says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. Hey, dude, I'm an angel. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm, I'm the angel Gabriel. My job is to stand before God, and when God has a message to people, I go. And he had a message for you, and so I went, and here we are, and we're talking. 
and you have questions about how will you know, well, I don't know what more God can do other than to send an angel to you to say, hey, dude, this is going to happen. He goes on to say, and behold, you shall be silent. Okay, you want a sign? We'll give you a sign. The sign is that you can't talk. You shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So he says, okay, if you have doubt, that's great. There's going to be, if you want a sign, I'll give you a sign. You can't speak. All these people are going to have some questions about what's taking you so long. And you're probably going to want to share this with your wife. And I don't know how good you are at trades uh, or ASL, but like you're going to have some problems and you're not going to be able to talk. And even if you write it down, your wife's going to have some real questions for you and you're not going to be able to answer these questions. So there's a pretty good sign so that you'll know. Uh, Verse 21, so the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. Like, this is something they did twice a day. And I don't know if the people are like, hey, dude, this is normally a five-minute thing. I got, like, I got a roast in the oven. I have this. Like, like, this is taking too long. What is happening in there? But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. <laughs> so I'll just keep reading. And he kept making signs to them. And he remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. So he comes out. I don't know what the, like, there are big smile on his face, like joy, happiness, but he has no words. But he's trying to do hand signals to this big crowd. So they have no idea what happened, but they do recognize that something happened in there because the in there was a place that not many people were allowed to go. And there was great awe and wonder over that place, in the holy place, and then the holiest of holies. He goes in there. He's in there for a long time. He comes out. Clearly, something happened. They can't speak. He can't share with them. And he goes home. That's how the story kind of ends on that part. And then in verse 24, the bigger picture. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months. So here you have this older woman. We do not know their story. I've been around some like first time moms that are super, super like paranoid about their bellies. Not like the looks of it, but like, like they want to have bubble wrap around them. Like they don't want anything to happen. And in this circumstance, I could see this woman being like, okay, I'm going to stay in my bedroom I, nothing is going to happen to this child. I'm going to do everything in my power to keep this baby safe. She's in seclusion for five months. And she says, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when Herod, when he, not Herod, I don't know where that came from. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace from men. So we already read in the beginning when we were introduced to the two of them that they, let me see, what verse was that in? Verse five or verse six, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. This is a super godly couple. This is God saying that they were living righteous before him. This isn't a, a person sort of example. It's easy for us to sort of uh, to look at somebody and say, oh, they're a really good person, but we don't have a clue what's going on. And it's like, there's not a lot of good happening. But when God looks at a person, he sees the inside, he knows who they are. And he says, no, this is, this is a righteous couple. They are blameless before me. God isn't fooled. Uh, 
It's easy to fool other people, but it's impossible to fool God. And God says, this couple is blameless before me. But just because God says that about them, that doesn't mean that's how she felt about herself, right? And how often do we go through the same thing where God says, listen, I went to the cross. I died for you. I paid for your debts. Your, everything has been wiped away. As far as the east is from the west, that is your sin. It's, I can't see it. It's gone. What I see in you is the righteous blood of Christ. You stand redeemed. You stand forgiven. You're, you're righteous. But, but we feel, no, I have remorse. I have shame. I'm bruised fruit because of things in my past. And here's a woman that's feeling the same thing. Just because she didn't have a kid. And in this, she says, God has taken away my disgrace. Which I think there's a powerful lesson in the midst of this. So like, like what, do we, what do we do with this story? Like, I think first and foremost, like this is, I mean, I say we just happen to kind of be in the story, but we, I mean, we're in the Gospel of Luke, and we're, it happens to be like around the Christmas season, and we happen to be entering into the Christmas season, so we kind of like pull some stuff. And so I think it's like, when, we, when I look at the story, I think it's, it's wonderful to, to embrace the Christmas story. Like, I love the Christmas season. I love the Christmas movies. I love the sweets probably too much. Um, but the story of Christmas really is that the Messiah came to be the ultimate sacrifice, to live this perfect life so that he could take away our sins and that we could stand in relationship with our creator. Not, not as Bruce Fruit, not as a God who's going, yeah, but I remember all of the sins that you committed and... Mm-mm. If you've received Christ as your savior, what, what he sees in you is, is the righteousness of Christ that has been credited to your account. And so I think there's a huge lesson in this for us. This is what the good news is all about. This is great news. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some of our sins look one way. Some of our sins look the other way, but all miss the mark. And I think that there's just this like wonderful picture of this couple in sort of two fronts. The one front is they had a big pain in their life and they had a lot of hurt and sorrow, but that didn't keep them from walking with God and serving him and being faithful to him. And then at the end of this sort of, not the end of the story, at the end of our story today, we see that in the midst of doing all of the right things before God as as she did, she still felt like within her that she was disgraced. And that wasn't coming from God. That was coming from her flesh. It was coming in spite of God. And I think that God wants us to recognize that if you've received Jesus as your savior, you're washed clean. Your past is your past. What he cares about is your future, where you're heading, where you're going. I think about Paul in Philippians, I don't look back. I look forward at the prize of Christ. And so my prayer is that for each one of us, that we would be able to receive the gift of Christ, his forgiveness, his redemption, that is the most important thing. My prayer is also for those of us who have received Christ and struggle with 
like actually receiving and believing the truth that you have been cleansed, that you've been set free, that God no longer looks at your past. He no longer holds you guilty for your past and that it's okay for you to forgive yourself. He's forgiven you. Don't rob the work of the cross by trying to continue to punish yourself. It was a very hard lesson for me to learn. And so, Father, we come before you grateful for the story of the gospel. We thank you for the story of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus came, that he lived this perfect life, and that he made the perfect sacrifice, and that by your grace, through faith, we can be forgiven, we can be restored. We pray, Father, for those who are listening to this, who are maybe unsure about where they stand before you. I pray, Father, that you would help them to to understand what the gospel is and that they would be able to enter into a relationship with you by faith alone. And Father, for those of us um, who stand before you forgiven, who stand before you justified because of the blood of Christ, Father, we acknowledge that so often we beat ourselves up for our past sins. And we still feel like we have disgrace and that we're unworthy and that you still look at us a little bit less than if we had could only go back and relive our lives in a way that was perfect to whatever that standard seems to be in our own eyes. Father, I pray that you would take these thoughts away from us, that you would cleanse our thinking, that you would help us to stand fully in the grace of God and to understand that that's, that really is the only measuring point. Are we in Christ or are we out of Christ? And Father, I also pray that you would help us to be a people that, that love like you loved and that we would not hold people's past against them that what we care about is people coming to Christ, receiving him as Savior, and walking in grace alone. We thank you, God, that this is how you desire to live and to interact with us. And I pray that you would help us as a fellowship to live and to love like you desire us to do. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.